This blog post was originally published in April of 2023. Additional Reflections on Feed Them Silence by Lee Mandelow, published by Robin on Reviews That Burn. This is a follow-up to my review of Feed Them Silence by Lee Mandelow, involving some thoughts that are too personal to make sense in the review as they swiftly veer away from the text specifically and instead into a broader meta-conversation of books like this, which I have read previously, assumed correlations between emotional complexity and humanity, and how processing these thoughts has prompted me to make a change in my own life. Content warning for discussion of ableism, dehumanization, animal cruelty, and death, body horror-adjacent concepts, and brief mentions of racism and genocide. How some of my neurodivergences affect me as a reader and reviewer. I have alexithemia, which is a term referring to a collection of symptoms related to a combination of difficulty identifying feelings, difficulty describing feelings to other people, a stimulus-bound, externally-oriented thinking style, and constricted emotional processes linking to Wikipedia with sources. Experientially, I don't like that the first two descriptions seem to assume that I and others like me have some emotional capacity if only I or we could access it. Having lived my whole life without that additional capacity or nuance of emotion, I'm content to live the rest of my life without it and continue my stimulus-driven existence as one that keeps me interested, occasionally happy, and avoiding boredom as much as possible. I've turned my avoidance of boredom into a constant stream of projects, one of which is this podcast and associated review blog. The thing which occasionally causes trouble for me is my lack of capacity to imagine, something which isn't always experienced by other alexithemics, but which seems to surprise and disturb people who think at all about what it means for me from their imagination-heavy perspectives. The biggest way this affects me is as a form of aphantasia, where I can only picture things I've literally seen. In my reading, I prefer dialogue-heavy books, which explain the reasons for various actions alongside physical descriptions. If I watch the movie version of a book, then the movie version is the only thing I can picture, no matter how much it diverges from what's described in the original text. Anyone who follows me on the story graph might notice the sheer number of books I don't finish because they over-described things and told me what color everything is, trying to paint a picture with their words. I dislike an overemphasis on visual detail or repeatedly describing facial expressions instead of translating them into thoughts or emotions, all of which makes the story unintelligible to me. This is complicated by factors such as that I am allistic, not autistic, person with alexithemia, but many Western cultural assumptions about autistic people are actually descriptions of alexithemia, plus or minus meltdowns, because there could be overlap between both states. I just happen to be in the less stereotypical position of being alexithemic, but not autistic. I have, for some time, even before learning specifically about alexithemia, identified as a philosophical zombie on the basis of a basic awareness that the culturally dominant terms around me imply this greater complexity in other people which I don't have and don't experience. I find this conceptually interesting and a somewhat pithy way of getting across to people without alexithemia or without other conditions which similarly constrict emotional experience, the gulf between their emotional life and mine. In the course of this essay, I use some references to emotions that reach beyond my personal palette of neutral, happy-slash-good, bored-slash-bad, excited-slash-interested, this interest as content-neutral and could be about good or bad topics, and sad-slash-disappointed. 
I do this because I generally understand the context that is implied by more specific emotional terms, but not because I'm literally feeling the emotions. I'm used to saying the more specific terms in conversations with other people, which is likely a form of masking. Because my experience as an alexithemic is central to my reaction to feed them silence and ideas of neurological complexity as a delineation of moral responsibility, I'll translate my actual emotion from the more generally accessible specific term when possible. So what does all of this have to do with Feed Them Silence? Feed Them Silence follows a researcher named Sean who uses technology to experience the mind of a wolf, dubbed Kate by the research team, with the interface translating the wolf's thoughts and emotions into something that is understandable by Sean's human brain. Ultimately, the question of whether Sean's experiences of Kate's emotional complexity are literal or are caused by the proxy of the interface's programming, or if the technology actually reflects Kate's complex emotions into Sean's brain is immaterial because Sean proceeds through the story with the assumptions that what she feels from Kate is complex and real. This is in the greater context of a specifically, but perhaps not only Western, assumption that complexity correlates with some kind of good in a moral sense, that feelings which are complicated are better and more real than feelings which are simple or composed of fewer discrete elements. It's also a story about her inability or disinterest in emotionally connecting with the humans around her, using her connection to Kate as a way of experiencing the feelings of connectedness which she craves. To me, the thing that immediately stands out is that the process of trying to map the wolf brain onto a human might be a form of technologically assisted anthropomorphization wherein the wolf isn't actually experiencing this emotional complexity, but the interface has been programmed on the assumption that these neurological impulses have human analogs. As general concepts, assumptions of neurological complexity are often tied in with assumed emotional capacity in popular descriptions in a way that doesn't clearly delineate between physical pain and emotional pain. When moral considerations become involved, there's often a kind of post hoc justification that cruelty is okay if the being who is harmed isn't actually emotionally or neurologically complex. These include whether harm crosses the line into cruelty or whether a death is a murder, using the broad definition that murder is death which is not morally sanctioned or otherwise permitted by the applicable social structures. As someone with alexithemia, I find this somewhere between confusing and frustrating. In a little se literal sense, my emotion is that I'm intrigued by the contradiction and therefore have turned that interest into writing this essay in addition to my review. Part of what caught my interest is that in Feed Them Silence, the protagonist, Sean, discovers that wolves are more emotionally complex than I, as a person, am. There's a very long list of emotions that Sean experiences through Kate, a complicated array filled with nuance and considerations of the future. Throughout the book, the question of whether wolves are emotionally complex is one of the factors in whether the characters feel bad about mistreating, experimenting on, or killing them. While Sean feels that they are, she does so on the basis of experiencing those emotions through the interface and therefore has difficulty in explaining her changing conclusions about the ethical considerations of the research to her colleagues. It's disturbing to read. I use disturbing as a term to get at the idea that I would not want to regularly engage with someone who thought that the fact that I'm probably less emotionally complex than my extremely expressive cat would be a reason to mistreat me. Or, inversely, that if they have as their default assumption that I am like a person without alexithemia, a person with emotional complexity, but they assume my cat, a non-human animal, is not emotionally complex, that it would be fine to mistreat my cat on the basis of that assumption. I have enjoyed individual books like this one that deal with the question of our relationship to animals and their sentience, sapience, or emotional death 
depth as a facet of how we interact with them. A long time ago, I read Eva by Peter Dickinson, a book which formed some of the background in my mind, onto which Feed Them Silence has become layered. In that book, a teenage girl ends up with her consciousness copied or transferred into the body of a chimpanzee after an accident. Throughout the novel, the division between her humanity and her life as a chimpanzee becomes blurred. By the end of her life, she barely remembers her time in a human body, and she is fully a chimpanzee in how she interacts with her new community. She might have a slightly higher than baseline intelligence for a chimpanzee, but what I recall is that she's presented as being very different by the end from immediately after the implantation. I think books like this are a way for people with this emotional complexity and nuance in their internal lives to try and grapple with this topic in one of two directions. There's the positive direction, which sometimes includes anthropomorphization and or some kind of projection, wherein non-human animal behaviors are attributed to human motivations, including emotional drives. The other direction is dehumanization, which either enforces or justifies a paradigm in which people who look like the human person doing this assessment are assumed to not be fully human, whatever the speaker means by that, for the sake of perpetuating some greater harm. Even the basic language for this concept assumes that humanity is special and morally relevant, such that dehumanization refers to treating people like things or denying their autonomy. I prefer the language of personhood in this context, though even that become, can become fraught, as there are people who experience depersonalization, where they and their experiences do not feel real. Refer in the show notes to the link to In Defense of Depersons by Joanna Hedva. This project of dehumanization and its intertwining with racism, classism, ableism, sexism, etc. means that there is no perfect word for unambiguously expressing the simple sentiment that I don't think outside observers should be in a position to declare someone's lack of autonomy or place judgments on the shape of their interiority, especially in any context where the observers find or place themselves in the position of denying access, autonomy, or opportunities to those whom they have judged and found wanting. I prefer the language of personhood as it moves further from substrate chauvinism in a way I find pleasing, good slash happy plus interesting. Substrate chauvinism is the idea or assumption that interiority is defined or constrained by substance. This is a concept which op often comes up in discussions of artificial intelligence, where someone might deny personhood to a computer which had the exact same interiority as a flesh person, usually a human in these examples, because of an assumption that the physical form or substrate underlying the mind in question constrains the range of possible mental states. Because of a societal tendencies towards substrate chauvinism, which underlies and frustrates, feels interesting, but not in a good or happy way, my, frustrates my attempts to choose words which are free of historical attempts to deny autonomy, coherency, worth not intertwined with capital, and dignity, I still use the term personhood while recognizing that the particular bundle of ideas which this term indicates to me may not be the same to other beings with whom I attempt to communicate. What this means for me. I find myself not at all bothered that based on her behavior, my cat probably has more complex emotions than I do. But this has led me to intellectually grappling with, i.e. discussing and then writing an essay to cohere my thoughts on, the idea that people have used either the perception or the actuality that other humans have the same limited emotional capacity as I do as a justification for harm. This can be as minor as not taking into account how small specific actions might mess up someone else's day, all the way to grander scales of harm like ableism, racism, specific and systemic, and various justifications that have been used in genocide. The fourth stage in the 10 stages of genocide is specifically dehumanization. 
So in that context, I don't like the idea that someone would assume on the basis of talking to me that I am worthy of more just because of the complexity they assume that I have when I don't, nor am I okay, good slash happy, with the idea that anyone would be treated badly on the basis of assuming that they're like me, whether or not they are. In the course of putting together this essay, I accidentally talked myself into being vegetarian on the basis of the thoughts that are outlined here for the sake of ethical and intellectual consistency which this, with this change in mental paradigm. I don't want to eat animals that are more emotionally complex than me, and since I can't know for sure, I'd rather err on the side that maximizes positive emotions for those who can experience them, either complexly or simply. I don't have some grand conclusion, just that maybe if you ask someone how they're feeling and they never seem to know, they might never have an answer for you, and that needs to be okay, good or neutral, in a general sense. Also, I hope, would likely be happy in the future to know, that this helps people pause before man- before demanding emotional complexity from others in order to acknowledge or respect their dignity and autonomy. Thank you to the friends who reviewed this for coherency in its draft form. Your feedback was insightful and deeply appreciated, good slash happy plus interesting, helping me to create the best achievable version of this post. Thank you particularly to Kavar and Shana Kravat, whose comments prompted additional references and explanations without which this would be incomplete. (laughs) 